there becomes a moment where we become aware of it. Something happens. Sometimes it's an external trigger. Sometimes it's an internal trigger. Sometimes shit really hits the fan. Or sometimes it's a really positive moving into a new role. But there is a moment of cognizance that takes place where all of a sudden we become aware of who is me and who is everybody else, and really being able to distinguish and separate those two voices inside of us. What's up and welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Ambika Pai, who's currently the CSO of a cool agency called Mechanism. She's in Chicago. Mechanism's based in various places, I think, especially mm-hmm. in New York. Ambika's in Chicago right now. Ambika was also a partner and co-head of strategy at the very cool two briefly lived agency, Wolf and Wilhelmina. You've worked in a bunch of very respected thinking strategy slash advertising agencies. Mm -hmm. Today, we're going to talk about instinctive leadership. Ambika, welcome to Sweathead. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. You said something beautiful to me when we spoke the other day, which is this. I think it's beautiful. Some people might think it's sad, but those two things aren't (laughs) opposites, all right? You said this. We were talking about strategy, especially in the US ecosystem. And you said, being a thinker isn't considered a power role. And then you added, the US is built for speed. Talk to me about that. I think in the US, we have an extreme bias for action. If people can't see how the rubber hits the road immediately, your thinking is invalid. And I remember, you know, I would say I started my pure strategy career at BBH and BBH, you know, was founded in the UK and so inherently has a planning DNA that is akin to how it was historically done in the UK, which is thoughtful, longer processes, lots of research, a really rich perspective. And that's where I learned to be a strategist, you know, and I learned from Emma Cookson and Sarah Watson, both of whom I look up to immensely about kind of the art of strategy. And I remember when I was leaving BBH, a lot of what I heard when I was interviewing was, this is not the place to do ivory tower planning. And it came back to them, you know, whoever was the interviewer at the time, believing that BBH did have a bit more ivory tower planning. And ivory tower planning was meant to be planning that you took your time with when you did get to do research, when you did get to kind of go deep in thought. And so it was at that point that I immediately realized that strategy actually wasn't the discipline of thinking in many of the US agencies, but it had to be a discipline of doing. Otherwise, you were not considered an important member of the team. And, you know, especially at agencies that are more creative first, like your mothers of the world, for instance, you can get into that trap that we're all very well aware of, of doing strategy for creative sake and using strategy to validate versus to inform. And I think that also comes from a bias for action and a bias for speed versus a bias for thoughtfulness and truth. And so, yeah, I I do feel like sometimes strategists tend to be in less powerful roles just because by nature we are the thinkers. Yeah. And if you work in a major city in the US in a large company, you might experience or you might see or you might come across the history of 
the strategy or account planning team being more of like an internal service provider, back mm-hmm. office. Mm-hmm. You know, in some companies, they're producer-led. Some big right. digital agencies are producer-led and they kind of will come for the insights. Just like in other agencies, they might be account-led and they'll come for the research and the insights. Right. And you might not even go to meetings or that might not be a natural uh, instinct to a lot of people. It feels smart to say that strategy can't just be about thinking. It needs to be about doing in the U.S. Yes. What does this mean, though? I mean, one of the things I always tell clients is that I have no interest in creating a 100-page deck that collects dust on their desks. Like, that is not what I want to do. That is not what I want any strategist to do. I even think the word white paper has gotten a bad name at this point because it's long form. I mean, to me, strategy is pure. It is about reconciling what's happening in culture, you know, how our consumers and audiences and just people in general's brains are working. But then it is rapidly about application. And I think the muscle that strategists need to continue to strengthen, if they're not already strong at it, most that I know actually are, is how you apply strategy in a way that can move a business forward. To me, one of the most limiting things is actually strategists thinking about themselves only through the lens of communications. I think strategy has a much, much, much bigger purview into actually how businesses are fundamentally built and run and how those businesses and brands communicate out in the world through those actions. Mm -hmm. And I think if strategists untether themselves from the history of what account planning was meant to do, which is just provide research and insights and then sort of walk away once the brief is done... And really think of themselves as the people who are shepherding strong thinking through an entire process and ensuring the integrity of that thinking across every touch point. All of a sudden, the strategist role does become much more powerful. Okay. Okay. But what if you're in a company that doesn't want you to be powerful? And Mm -hmm. what if you hear someone like you saying you you should be in a place that you can apply, place as in a a place in life, a situation, not mm-hmm. just an agency where you can apply a strategy, but you can't get close to strategy and everything has to go through the creative department. And then there's five <laughs> other agencies and there's an in-house team that you're all competing with and you're not on retainer, you're doing jump ball. Mm-hmm. How can what you just said actually be practical to the majority of strategists in the US who are not in yeah. a situation where they could do this? Well, I think it's a fewfold, right? To me, it actually comes <laughs> back to the very, very simple core of insight. An insight is inherently something that is unique, unthought of, hopefully, ideally, and actionable, right? And I think what happens is every strategist goes into Google and types the exact same fucking query into Google and gets the exact same results. And so then all of our strategies turn out the same. You know, I've been a social media strategist. I've been a comm strategist. I've been a data strategist. I've been a brand strategist. And at each juncture in my career where I played one of those roles, I was dramatically siloed, right? When I was a social media strategist, I could only come with social media insights. But the way I transitioned from a social media strategist to a comms planner and then to a brand strategist is by always showing how that leveled up to something much, much bigger. And so you're always going to have to do the core of your job. You're always going to have that channel insight that drives the social campaign you're doing. But making sure that ties to 
a much broader implication to me is very important. Thinking about your job as feeding into and bolstering and reinforcing an entire ecosystem of communications or an entire ecosystem of a business versus just putting a nail in your one singular part of it is how I have managed to take myself out of silos historically. Yeah. Okay. I hear you. I hear you. Now, you're doing a lot of thinking about instinct and mm-hmm. leadership. Yes. Right now. And I'm sure at some point in the near future, you reveal why (laughs) and how it's going to come to life, how that thinking is going to come to life. But my question to you, just to get us started on that particular topic is like, why has instinct in leadership become something that you're really interested in? Yeah. I mean, first of all, let's use this as a tissue session, right? This is not me coming and presenting any thinking. I have, you know, some (laughs) loose thoughts and some theories that as all good strategists do, I would I would love to hear multiple perspectives on and pressure test and all of that stuff. You got to you got to define tissue session. There are young people here. Ah. Not everybody knows what that is. A tissue <laughs> session is one of my favorite meetings of all time. The term tissue session originates from when people would sit at a restaurant or at a breakfast and write ideas down on a tissue. It was casual. It was spitbally. It was oftentimes very creative in in how it was approached because it took away all of the restrictions and parameters and and formality. So that is a tissue session. Arguably some of the best meetings any of us have ever been in have been tissue sessions. So I'm going to pretend this is one of those. (laughs) Okay, it is. Well, they're great because they allow other people to get their fingerprints on the ideas. I I just had flashbacks to meetings I've been in where like 20 people agreed to create a tissue session for a client. And then we left the meeting and people would come up going, what's a tissue session? Oh my gosh. (laughs) So That's so funny. So Mark, welcome to my tissue session on leading with instinct. (laughs) All right. Let's tissue it up, baby. That's a new phrase. Yeah. So- why instinct? On one hand, it goes way, 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 way back. I am of South Asian descent. My parents immigrated from India. I was born in the US, but only about one year after they landed here. They were 20 years old, very, very young. And we lived in a house with my father's whole family. So it was a joint family household with my grandparents, his parents, his brother, his brother's wife, and ultimately after me because I was and am the eldest in the family, my amazing little cousin who at this point is like a sister to me. But I grew up in a deeply Indian household in the middle of Ohio. And was constantly, constantly trying to reconcile these two versions of myself. Where at home, it was really important for me to be a reflection of Indian culture and Indian tradition um, and Indian values. But then I had to leave the house and be an English-speaking participant in school. And through that process of assimilating and trying to stay true to I guess, potentially what I would have considered way back then a core part of my identity, which was my Indian upbringing, I had to perform nonstop. I was performing when I was home. I was performing when I was at school. There were times I would change outfits after leaving the house and literally become somebody who looked completely different to go to school because at home, makeup was looked down upon. Nail polish was looked down upon. I couldn't wear sleeveless shirts. You know, a very strict traditional upbringing. And I would argue that it actually, the pendulum swung so far to 
kind of traditionalism because everyone landed in America and was like, how do we preserve this part of ourselves that we love? And and how do we ensure that, you know, our children get to experience this? So it was beautifully intentioned, but potentially harmful in how it was executed. So I was always performing. And I Mm -hmm. think as I was coming up in my career, I just continued to perform. And it only was when I got into leadership positions where I was having to make decisions at the drop of a hat that had huge implications and huge ripple effects that I started realizing I was jumping through multiple hoops to make those decisions. You know, I was thinking about what my old boss would do, what my dad would do, what an author would do whose book I just finished, instead of really thinking about how to lead from my own value system and my own experience and kind of legitimize what I had lived through as a professional. And so that is where the core of the idea of leading through instinct came from. Got it, got it. Yeah, I think there are various models that map some of this stuff out across various cultures, such as we inherit or absorb or play a role or i mean indian culture has very specific roles right based on the caste system that people have to play there's role playing roles that society tells you that you Mm -hmm. can play and at some point through crisis for some people they realize that they want to be more than that role have to pay attention to themselves for the first time in a very specific way which can be scary right because it's it's almost easier for some people to be like i know this role doesn't fit but at least i know it i know how to play it right and then through crisis, potentially the need to reassemble themselves. So in in some way, I think what you're focusing on around instinct is that reassembling moment, that phoenix rising from the ashes moment. That is exactly it. And, you know, I'm even thinking about living and leading through instinct, right? I don't think that being in touch with your instinct just has work implications. It, it undoubtedly has life implications too. But as yeah. I've been sort of thinking through what the parts and pieces of instinctual leadership are. We are brought up in specific contexts, as my Indian upbringing story revealed. We are then conditioned like hell through the media, through little bits of conversation, through how we're parented, through the friends we make, through the bosses we have. And then there becomes a moment, Mark, to exactly what you were saying, where we become aware of it. Something happens, sometimes it's an external trigger, sometimes it's an internal trigger, sometimes shit really hits the fan, or sometimes it's a really positive moving into a new role. But there is a moment of cognizance that takes place where all of a sudden we become aware of who is me and who is everybody else, and really Mm -hmm. being able to distinguish and separate those two voices inside of us. And it's only when we hit that phase of becoming cognizant that we're actually able to rebuild through a lens of being conscious of everything we have carried around in us and also everything Mm -hmm. we are and what we hope to be. For you in particular, did that moment or the moments of realization, this cognizance, sometimes it hits us quickly, sometimes it percolates for a little bit. Did that coincide with the language you would need to navigate the shift. Mm-hmm. You know, because I, I, I think sometimes people have this gut feeling, this instinct, something's not right, but they're not sure what to call it after allowing themselves to feel it. Did the language kind of coincide with your realization or did it lag? Not at all. It didn't coincide at all. I mean, 
they say hindsight is twenty twenty, and I couldn't agree more. I really doubted my instincts for a really long time. And I doubted it because I experienced certain things that made me feel like my instincts were invalid and that my instincts were leading me the wrong way. And Mark, the other day, you and I talked about one of those instances in particular where I ended up joining a company kind of mid-career that didn't feel right in my bones, but felt right for my resume and felt like it would be extremely externally validating and ended up really putting myself in a bad position of, you know, racism, sexual harassment, the whole lot. And it was a really damaging moment. And it was damaging to my career because I didn't know where to go from there. And I felt like I had failed. The company ended up shutting down because of, you know, kind of the poisonous core versus anything we we the employees did wrong. But it was really damaging. And it made me doubt what I thought was my instinct, which was take this job because it's going to help your career. Take this job because this is why women get left behind. They don't take jobs because, you know, they are afraid of what will happen. They don't take jobs because men make comments that make them feel uncomfortable. Take the power back and take the job. And it didn't last very long. But coming out of that experience, I was like, what is wrong with me? How could I have taken that job? How could the voice inside me have told me to take that job and put me in that position? And it's only now looking back that I realize it's because there are two types of instinct, right? And there's some really interesting literature out there about how sometimes your gut feeling is a trauma response. And that's exactly what that was. You know, I had had a sexual assault situation in college, like that was a trigger of mine. And, you know, I was also coming up way before the Me Too movement and advertising. And so that stuff was very common. I had people making comments about my legs when I was a junior strategist and telling me I looked like a sexy secretary on days when I wore my hair in a bun with glasses, just like stuff at this point that I hope and pray to the universe. A lot of you know, young people don't experience or anyone experiences, but we experienced a lot of that early in advertising. Our holiday parties were not the holiday parties that we had in 2019 pre-pandemic. And so what I've realized now in retrospect is that that was an instinct, but an instinct I have to now work to tame versus an instinct to hone. And so I think there's two types of instinct we all need to kind of sort through. One is which instincts come from damage or a trauma response or a really painful experience that we have not been able to resolve yet. And the other is which instincts come from like the true core of myself and what I want for myself and who I am. How do you notice the difference Mm -hmm. in the moment Mm -hmm. or close to the moment? And I want to separate that just for anyone else who's trying to develop a better relationship with themselves that Mm -hmm. in the moment might be too much for a lot of people. Maybe it's a day later, maybe it's an hour later, maybe it's months later, right? But like, how do you develop the skill to, first of all, notice the instinct and then to work out if we accept that there are two types, instincts to tame and instincts to hone, Mm -hmm. which instincts at play right now and why, where it comes from? In order to really understand and live your life through instinct or lead from instinct, you need to 
have a really deep understanding of yourself. That's what's made this project so challenging for me and why, you know, a lot of times I struggle to talk about it or I struggle to formulate my thoughts or articulate it well in a way that people will fully understand because it requires me trudging through the sludge of my own life and failures and pain and grief to get there. And honestly, the only reason I've realized it, and this concept has been in my head for years, I would not have been able to work through it in the way I am now, because I needed to understand myself better. Mm -hmm. And a strategist can solve any problem like that will go on my tombstone. I truly believe a strategically minded person, because we are inherently curious, we think we look at things from a thousand different perspectives, and we solve really big problems. If you put that skill set back on yourself, which many people have done, like there's a life brief out there, there are multiple tools for this that have not worked for me. The only thing that's worked for me is therapy. But you know, it, it requires a level of introspection and bringing up the stuff that you probably don't want to bring up again in order to figure out which instincts you need to tame and which instincts you need to hone. But okay. shorthand, I think the instincts that you need to tame are anything that comes from a, a trauma experience. Okay. And the instincts to hone is when you really strip back and think about who you are fundamentally and also who you want to be. You know, what are your aspirations? What do you want to bring to the world? Loftiest question of all time, but like, what are you on this earth to do? Mm -hmm. Do you have an answer to that question? I think for the first time in my life, I have an understanding of it. And whew, this is a vulnerable moment. I don't know if I've talked about it before in this way. You know, my favorite part of what I do, I love strategy. I think it's a really fun, incredible, dynamic job. But what I really, really love is just working with people and helping people formulate their best thinking. I have flourished way more in management roles than I felt like I would have in, in craft roles. And, you know, that takes me down a whole other tangent about why we think about leadership in kind of one sense and how even, you know, the Facebooks of the world and a lot of tech companies have those two paths of leadership. One is around the craft and one is around management. I am much more of a people person. And, you know, one of the best compliments I've ever gotten in my life was you help me bring out the magic in my own thinking. And I hold that so close to my heart. And I think there is something in that comment that is aligned to my purpose of helping people tap into the most meaningful way they can express themselves out in the world. Does mm -hmm. that sound very cheesy? <laughs> no, I mean, I relate to it. If I can just throw myself in here of for course. a second. It's my podcast after all. No, but like, you know, I used to publish an underground hip hop magazine and I wrote for a lot of other magazines and street press every week, did a radio show. And I, I pressed pause on my own creativity because I thought, you know what, I can actually play a role getting some underground voices out into the world a little bit, play a small role in doing it. And it's kind of the same thing that has motivated me to keep going with, with Sweathead, yeah. right? But also what I found 
interesting is I read Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way mm -hmm. and she talks about the shadow artist. Mm -hmm. And as she talked about the shadow artist, it could be someone who owns an art gallery versus doing the art or right. someone who manages a performer rather than being a performer. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. I have put myself consciously in the shadows. I remember I put consciously put myself in the shadows to try to support other voices. Yeah. Uh, and so to you, do you wonder – if at all that yes you can help people get their magic into the world but at some point does that mean that you're like a shadow artist if you're familiar with that concept and yeah. how you feel about that i love that that i've never heard that before but i love that idea of almost making yourself an invisible support system to a community or or a group of people or in service of something like art i'm still trying to reconcile it I grew up in a very comparative culture. I grew up in a culture where everyone talked about how well their kids were doing, who was getting into Ivy Leagues, who was on a varsity sports team. I was always the little creative girl. And creative was a pursuit in frivolity in my culture. You could be a doctor, an engineer, a business person, a lawyer, but I was the one like singing songs and recording them on my karaoke machine in the basement. And I put so much of that to the wayside in order to do what I felt I needed to do to be successful. So I dropped my – or I didn't focus on my English major, didn't focus on my psychology major, added a minor in marketing and was like, cool, this is, this is business. <laughs> and it's been an incredible experience – but I feel like it's because I've now found a way to do it that feels authentic to me. And so the work that we recently did for Freedom Mom, where, where it was the first time we ever showed lactating breasts on television, I was working on that project, literally breastfeeding my, my child, first project I touched after maternity leave. And to me, it wasn't about being the strategist that worked on Freedom Mom or like winning multiple awards, although that's always a nice cherry on top. And instead of putting the Freedom Mom work on Pornhub, which was literally our original strategy, because that was the only place you could show breasts, we had to sit down with NBC and change their policy. So very much in the background, right? Not mm -hmm. out, you know, not on NBC talking about it, but very much doing the thinking and the driving of whatever is needed to move the world forward. Okay. And What's going to move the world forward is what moves people forward to move the world. So I do feel like I'm okay being the shadow artist. And I, I feel like that is a big part of what I'm meant to do. If you spend your days trying to get into people's heads, but are interested in strategy classes, books and events that get into your head, visit sweathead.com. You can pick up the Kickstarter funded book, Strategy Is Your Words, by me. Find out about our monthly membership, online classes and the company training that we do. Yes, this was an ad, a gentle, gentle ad. Back to the interview. How has your leadership changed as you've become more aware of your instincts but also like you're deliberately thinking through what instinctive leadership means right now. And I know we're being vague because we can't say what you might or might not be working on, but like <laughs> how has your leadership changed in the past few years as you've become increasingly aware mm -hmm. of the role that instinct can play in leadership, but also the need for you personally to lead yourself through your instincts? What's changed? You know, what's actually interesting 
the way you asked it has made me think about this in a different way. I think leading through instinct has actually given me a speed and a bias for action I did not have before, actually. It has transitioned me from just a thinker to a thinker who acts. And it has given me kind of the confidence and the wherewithal to feel comfortable spitballing, feel comfortable speaking up in a room. It's made me notice myself versus hide from myself because I was I was really insecure coming up, right? Because I was like, I'm the weird creative girl. Like I don't fit into my Indian culture. I don't fit into American culture. People make fun of my name. I, I pronounce words differently. I think differently. And, you know, we are philosophically taught to be cultural fits. Like, is this person a culture fit when we're interviewing? Is this someone I'd want to have a beer with? And I was never a culture fit. I remember like at one job in particular, it was very clear who the favorites were. And I was at the bottom of the totem pole in terms of like the head of strategies favorites, because I just was very, very different. And once I became comfortable with that difference and looked at what I felt my strengths were versus what everyone else felt my strengths were and started leaning into those strengths, it changed everything for me. And what are they? Give me your strengths. What are they? I remember, you know, my strength is probably not writing the most succinct brief in the world. Like boiling a brief down into a one pager, probably not my strength. Writing a brand story that makes you feel something, much more my strength. You know, getting into the nitty gritty of a data set and research and kind of combining a hundred inputs into one, probably not my strength. But taking something that is is a loose form and kind of a nebulous thought and taking it up several notches, that is my strength. And my strength, you know, at one point, one of my managers, I went to them and I said, you know, I'm thinking about the future of my career. And I just I really don't think I'm that good of a strategist. Like, I, I just don't know if that's the future for me. And she looked at me in silence with wide eyes. And was like, why do you think that? And it was because, you know, for years, I had my briefs ripped apart, my decks ripped apart. And she's like, well, yeah, but strategy takes many forms. And your strategic strengths are just different than writing a fucking one page brief. And I needed that desperately. Like I was about to you know, abort mission, leave strategy, figure out what the next thing was for me. And I needed somebody to hold up a mirror and be like, no, you're good at this. You're just good in a different way. And that was massive to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's something that anyone who's listening to this, who manages anybody, if you feel that they've just done a good job or you think they're good at something, say it and say it really specifically. This is mm-hmm. a teachable moment. That's something that you learn if you, if you ever have kids, not that you have to have kids, <laughs> not that having kids or not having kids is good or bad or whatever, but like teachable moments are, mm-hmm. are, are useful. You only get a few years at them and then they're like, shut up. Yeah. Uh, but being specific with them is really important as well. So yeah. that's sort of an instinct that a leader can pay attention to. Can you think of any other instincts that leaders can pay more attention to, especially for people who are new to leadership roles. This industry is young. There are a ton of young managers and a ton of young leaders with big titles. But like, can you think of any any other little moments like that 
that could potentially really change someone's day from leader to team? Well, first, be conscious of one, what type of leader, and I'm, I'm literally air quoting leader, because I think we think of leadership as such a single minded thing, right? I was reading this research study, and it was an older one from the early 2000s, but it was about leadership, and they only interviewed CEOs. And I was like, it just didn't sit right with me. Because who's to say that a CEO is the only manifestation of leadership in this world? Also, who is to say that management and being the leader of a team is the only manifestation of leadership? And I think this is one of the biggest flaws in our thinking of leadership. Not everyone wants to manage people. Some people are really bad managers because they don't want to do it. And we need to make room for whatever type of leadership the person is wanting for themselves and what their aspirations are. My team is really interesting because there's a very clear delineation between people who love the people part and people who love the work part. And all of them are absolutely phenomenal strategists. I'm so fortunate. Like I learn from these people constantly. And some are just way more interested in doing the big breakthrough culture shifting advertising. And some are way more interested in doing the type of work that deeply affects a small group of people or doing the type of work that, you know, takes five strategists or five thinkers and helps culminate their thinking into something epic. So I think first and foremost, for managers out there, one, do you want to be a manager of people? Really ask yourself that question, because if not, think about a different way, because everyone on your team should not have the responsibility of trying to make you love being a leader of people. If that's not your thing, that's a heavy burden. Two, ask every single person on your team what type of leader they want to be. What is their aspiration? Is their aspiration to one day be a researcher who contributes to an epic piece of thinking that shifts the way that, you know, industries are built or conversations are had or society thinks? Or Do you want to galvanize and uplift and encourage people? But I think it's really important to pause and ask ourselves and everyone around us those questions. Mm -hmm. So just in like with fewer words or with shorter words, what are the categories? So for example, some leaders are coach like, some are more manager like, and they're quite different. Uh, Are there others that are quite common? I mean, my argument ultimately would be There are no types because if we actually are leading instinctually, we're kind of abolishing the concept of having to fit into groups. Mm -hmm. I hope we can do away with templates of leadership. But Mm -hmm. I would say right now on paper, there are three categories of leadership. Leaders of business with a money sign for the S. (laughs) People who know how to make money and are returning on investment and are building, building, building leaders of people, and leaders of culture. And even if you just take those three things, I think you will have a richer conversation with people on your team or people that you manage or mentor, even your friends or yourself, about where you fit in. Okay. So TikTok's been kind of interesting for psychology. I do Mm. come across some stuff. 
And some of it echoes some things that in my very brief stints in uh, therapy, which I do for a few weeks until I resent how much it costs every decade or so, <laughs> that uh, stuff that I've, I've sort of learned along the way as well. And one thing that's been on my mind recently is something I came across on TikTok where a psychologist was saying a lot of people who are overthinkers mm-hmm. often come into the therapy moment really self-aware. They know yes. their triggers. They know the trauma that might have caused the trigger. They might even mm-hmm. know how to solve it. Yes. And they, this psychologist differentiated between, but there's a difference between thinking and knowing versus feeling. Mm. And it's exactly what the la- my last therapist told me in the last session that I went to. Because mm-hmm. I was like, that sounds smart. I don't know what it means. Do you know what that means? So thinking versus Thinking and knowing feeling. versus feeling, which could also get us to another question, which mm-hmm. is we often talk about like trust your gut. Yes. Or you'll hear the word gut brought up when it mm-hmm. comes to feeling. And it's just, it's like, okay, well, how do I listen to my gut? You know, right. some of us might go for, go for words, but then that's going to limit us as well. Like how, how can someone get more in touch with their instincts if they largely experience themselves through knowledge, information, and thoughts? Mm, Very interesting question. Okay, so let me do this in parts and pieces. The first is thinking versus feeling, right? As thinkers, which is how we started this conversation, full circle. We are curious. We tend to have higher levels of self-awareness, and we know how to solve problems rationally. It is what we do in our careers, We have all of the knowledge in our brains to psychoanalyze ourselves. And every therapist I've ever had has said that to me as well, Mark. So I I do think it's, it's a sign of a strategist. But there is a difference between knowledge and knowing, which is something we talked about a lot at W&W and I love. I think about it all the time. But to take it a step further into leading with instinct, there is a difference between inherited knowledge and inherent knowledge. And I think sometimes we mistake inherited knowledge for inherent knowledge because we don't know how to seek that inherent knowledge, right? Are you tracking? Is this a bit too uh, esoteric? Hey, I'm, I'm taking notes, but you got to break these things down. Okay, okay. Got to break these things down. So, no, because yeah. like, I, I think intellectually all of, all of these concepts are really, really useful, mm-hmm. but also sometimes you could hear people talk through this Mm -hmm. and you haven't necessarily kind of gone through that crisis and reassembling Mm. phase in life and be like, what are they talking about? And, and you know what, sometimes maybe it just takes a certain life stage or or even maybe it takes a certain age for you to get to the point where you're like, Oh, I get that. I get that because I'm now 35 or I'm 44. I'm not 21, but I'm like, I've been around long enough. I'm like, yep, all those little coping mechanisms don't work for me anymore. Yeah. That social persona that I developed to survive my family or my community doesn't work for me anymore. Mm-hmm. And I know that. And then the next step for me is to work out what to do about it and to take responsibility for it. Right. But is, how can we explain some of these concepts in a way that might be practical to someone before they might actually know they need it? Yeah. That's a weird question. There you go. Esoteric question for your esoteric <laughs> answer. I love it. These are my favorite types of conversations, <laughs> which is pretty bad. Um, look, I had to hit rock bottom 
in order to realize a lot of this. And my hope is that this work can help people before they hit that phase. Because if I had some of the tools that I have now, when I hit rock bottom, I would have handled rock bottom differently. A few years ago, you know, we had just shut down Wolf and Wilhelmina, which was such a core part of my identity, my sense of self-worth. And I didn't know what to do with myself. Right after that, I had a miscarriage. Right after that, my mom got diagnosed with cancer. Right after that, I had another miscarriage. Right after that, I found out that I too have the cancer gene and was figuring out infertility specialists to see. And I was a wreck. I was a wreck. And I did not know how to carry on. And this isn't, this isn't that long ago. <laughs> I was at Mechanism. And I did not know how to be a chief strategy officer with the level of responsibility that I had while dealing with such deep, deep grief. And I am really good at compartmentalizing. Like the hardest year I had in college, I got a 4.0. That just goes to show I was not a 4.0 type of person. But the worst year I had, 4.0. Because I throw myself into things. That's really high for everybody outside of the USA. That's not four out of 100. That's four out of four. (laughs) Four out of four. Yes. Not four out of 100. Can you imagine? I threw myself into it and I still failed. No, but I had always thrown myself into whatever part of my life felt the most stabilizing. When actually what we need to do is throw ourselves into the part of our lives that feel the most unsettling. I had to grieve. You know, I had to sit with the fact that I lost a baby. I had to sit with the fact that my mom got diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And I threw myself into work for a while. You know, I I had a conversation with my boss and was like, look, I'm going to need to take some time off. I'm going to need to go home to be there for my mother. You know, I was like, please let's introduce miscarriage into our bereavement policy because I am grieving as if somebody died because that's how it felt to me. But I didn't take any time off. I literally had my miscarriage on like a Thursday and was back in the office on Monday, still in tons of physical pain, still crying in the bathroom. And I didn't give myself the space to grieve. And that grief was destroying me. Compartmentalization is just stuffing Pandora's box. And someday it's going to get so stuffed, it's going to burst open and you're going to have to deal with Mm. it. So but my one piece of input would be to look at your grief and look at your trauma and look at the things that are holding you back and will 100% continue to hold you back. Because it is only when you do that that you can truly catapult forward. Hmm. It's when you kind of look your grief and your trauma in the eye. Yeah, and and perhaps there's like a a non-trivial but short way to summarize what you're saying as well, which is like crisis can create you. Hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and and psychologists will talk about it's not always what happened to you that matters. It's your perspective on right. what happened to you that actually matters. And that's, that's a tough little epiphany to arrive at if you've been holding on to some difficult things for a long time. Mm-hmm. I appreciate you, um, you sharing this with me. Yeah. Final question. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the hardest part of 
trying to be a leader mm-hmm. who leads through instinct. How much you have to reveal of yourself in a world where we all have very shiny facades. I've had to talk about everything with my team. You know, just a few weeks ago, I was like, I need a mental health day. I'm not in a great place. I need a mental health day. I need y'all to handle whatever. Like, I need a day to not be contacted. And so much shame comes up around that for me because I have historically always been such an output-oriented person. If I'm not creating something every day or being productive, I become very hard on myself. And so having to communicate my needs when my needs stem from a place of pain and hurt and quote-unquote weakness, which is not actually weakness, but we are all taught is, that is hard. But what it allows for is everyone else to do the same. You know, what it allows for is somebody on my team coming to me very early in their pregnancy and saying, I'm pregnant, but I also had a miscarriage. And, you know, I just want you to know I'm pregnant. And me being able to truly be there for them and think about, you know, go back to my own experience and put myself in their shoes or hear from them firsthand what they need and and the kind of support I can provide. And so it opens the floodgates and arguably does make it much harder to lead because you're not just dealing with people in a transactional work-based capacity, but you are dealing with human beings who are all going through rough shit. The world as we know it, and I was just listening to an amazing podcast with David Kessler, who is an expert on grief and his story is absolutely gut-wrenching and not for the faint of heart, which I totally am. And after I listened to it, I was like, how did I listen to that? But he said, you know, we are in a moment of collective loss. We are working through grief every single day. We are experiencing the death of something. And that is the world as we knew it, our lives as we knew it, connection as we knew it. And the one thing we can never, ever, ever do is think of grief as comparative. My grief is not superior to or more meaningful or more impactful to anyone else's. Mm -hmm. So we are going through a lot right now as a society and as humanity, also as companies, as teams, as managers, as employees. And I think that level of vulnerability and being open is fucking terrifying, but also the only way we can support each other and stay okay right now. Ambika, thank you so much for joining me here today. If people want to find out more about you and this unnamed thing you might or might not be working on, (laughs) where's the best place to find you? LinkedIn, Instagram. You can always email me. I'm very happy to connect and support. And especially if any people need help navigating pregnancy and parenthood and all of that, it is something I've become very passionate about. And there's very little support that I found out there. So I want to try to support other people through it. So yeah, find me. I would love to connect and talk. And I hope this is a nice little taster of what's to come. Beautiful. Well, may your instincts lead you to where you want and more importantly, need to go. Thank you for joining me on Sweater today. I'm Pika Pai. Thank you, Mark. Talk to you soon. Peace. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Sweathead. If it's your first time here, please subscribe. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend or leave a kind rating. For more information about our strategy classes, events, and books, visit www.sweathead.com. And yes, you can find us on Instagram at, at sweathead. Sure.